with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January, uh, January. it's September the 19th to 18th. Jeez, let's just try that again. Today is September the 18th, 2013, and this is episode 1208 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you today. Evan Folds on composting, biodynamics, hydroponics, uh, making compost teas, vortex, uh, vortexing water and vortexing compost tea, and all kinds of great stuff. Um, I wasn't sure how good this interview was going to be when I got his application, but it turned out Elvin is an extremely knowledgeable individual, and it was great to have somebody on that could do most of the talking while I'm still mending my voice from this crud, whatever it is that I have. Um, he's just an awesome guy, and uh, I'm really glad to have met him, and I can tell you this will not be his last appearance on the show. Before I bring him on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one, survivalgearbags.com. Survival Gear Bags was born and raised right out of the Survival Podcast community where Kelly John Doe was first a member of this uh, community. We were only in about four or five months into doing the show. A very, very new and young community. It just had founded the forum. He showed up there under the handle Cart Pusher and put together some group buys for people and thought, hey, maybe I can make a business out of this. He did. He created Survival Gear Bags with some of the best gear and best bags you could ever put that gear into. Check him out at survivalgearbags.com. And remember, as a member of the community, Kelly stepped up right away to support the member support brigade and offers all members of the support brigade a discount and free shipping to all at survivalgearbags.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, who I call the original survival podcast sponsor. Back when we only had about, oh, I don't know, 2,500 listeners and uh, really were just getting our feet wet. Uh, Vic Rantala there stepped up and said, we want to sponsor what you're doing. And I said, I don't know if we can do enough for you yet. And he said, I think you can. I think you, uh, you're you on to something, and I want to be part of it. So we set up the entire sponsorship program, including the uh, unique way that we vet our sponsors with our listener ad council around Vic and uh, Safe Castle Royal. And he stuck by us, and that relationship now goes back five years Five years, uh, officially this January, Safe Castle will have been a sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Most podcasts do not last five years, let alone most podcast sponsorships. As I said last time when I mentioned Vic, I'm trying to think of something we as a community could do for sponsors for their fifth year anniversary. Anybody with any ideas, please let me know. In the meantime, get over to safecastle.com and check out everything that Safe Castle has for your prepping needs. And remember, they have a discount buyers club. It is an awesome deal. It's 50 bucks, actually 49 and then for the rest of your life you get discounts from them. But if you're a member of My Support Brigade, you get that for free. It's a $49 value on a $50 membership. So that your first year costs you a dollar just from that one benefit alone. Like I said, they're huge supporters of this community, and we're lucky to have Vic and his team working with us. Next up, want to remind you guys about 13skills.com. I did get a lot of entries in finally for the badge uh, contest I'm running. Uh, I'll get Josiah to put those all into a forum uh, poll so we can vote on them and select a winner. And the winner will get a lifetime member support brigade membership. On that note, let me flip the paper over I've got here. 
Uh, Twelve people have signed up as lifetime members so far. I put out a post on the uh, blog yesterday about the lifetime membership program and how to find out about it and become a lifetime MSB member for 300 bucks if you wanted to. Twelve people took me up on it so far. That means there's eight positions left before I close the program. Uh, I might open it similar in a limited number near the end of the year. Uh, after that, it won't happen again for about a year. So uh, I don't do it often. And uh, if you've been wanting it, uh, this would be the time to do it. Again, you become a lifetime member. It means you never pay again. Uh, any rate increases, if they ever happen, will not apply to you. And every benefit every ever added you'll have for the rest of your life. Um, with that, if you are not ready to be a lifetime member but would like to become a member of the Support Brigade, it's 50 bucks a year or you get a big discount if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, or a first responder like an EMP, a EMP, an EMT, a paramedic or a firefighter. The way to claim that discount on your membership is email me with service discount in the subject line before, not after you join. And uh, tell me in two sentences or less who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, and I'll give you a discount code and instructions on how to use it to make a great value even better. With that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up. I want to go into our, our brief history segment here. We've started doing a segment where we use the, uh, the episode number to look at the year in question and uh, see what occurred. So this is episode 1209 of Survival Podcast. And uh, what happened in 1209? It's kind of a boring year, at least from the Wikipedia page on it. Um, nothing that really stands out. There is a massacre on Black Monday in Dublin. A group of 500 recently arrived settlers from Bristol are massacred by warriors of the Gaelic O'Brien clan. The group leaves the safety of the walled city of Dublin to celebrate Easter Monday uh, near a wood at Renlaw and are attacked without warning. Although in modern times it's relatively obscure event in history, commemorated by a mustering of the mayor, sheriffs, and soldiers on the day to challenge the native tribes for centuries afterwards. So if you ever said the original Black Monday wasn't when everybody went shopping after Christmas, I guess that's kind of interesting. Uh, in November, John of England was excommunicated by Pope Innocent III. Uh, I keep seeing Pope Innocent showing up during this time because he was the Pope, and I guess he had a lot of control over at least the European components of the world at the time. I just got to say, any guy that names himself innocent is probably guilty of something. <laughs> well, anyway, despite excommunication, King John continues to make amends to the church, uh, including giving alms to the poor whenever he defies a holiday, holy day by hunting during it. This year, he feeds a hundred paupers to make for when he for when he quote went into the woods on the feast of Saint Mary Magdalene end quote. And three years from now, he'll feed 450 paupers, quote, because the king went to take cranes, and he took nine, for each of which he feasted 50 paupers, end quote. So even though the king had been excommunicated, he continued to uh, to do things to try to, I guess, appease the church, um, showing how much power the Catholic church had at this time and how much power the pope had. And think about this. Even if you were a king... At this time, going hunting on the day of the Feast of St. Mary Magdalene was considered a bad thing to do. So I guess there was no hunting on Sundays, just as there's no hunting on Sundays in some states still here in the United States of America for religious reasons. Let me say on the separation of church and state that's supposed to exist in this country, no such laws should exist, yet they still do. You can see their roots are quite ancient.
Anyway, with that, I do have the uh, the housekeeping wrapped up. Right before I bring Evan on, I want to say something about the episode we did yesterday. Um, we did have one person go freaking mental. I think he was drunk at 3 o'clock in the morning or something. Uh, and from the audience, not a troll. and it, it, it troubles me, and I basically told him he's in a permanent timeout, and I left his posts up. He's not allowed to post anymore until he apologizes to the person he was remarkably insulting to. Um, I've tried to be a good example of that. I've had some of my uh, worst moments uh, in public uh, as as the uh, as the leader of this community, and I've always tried to make amends and apologize for that. And I expect no less of the uh, members of the community to do the same. He's taken his ball and gone elsewhere. I think he's going to go listen to Call Danager for a while, whatever. Maybe Carl can tell him that the economy is going to collapse on a certain date again and not have it happen. Um, I bring that up only because there were some people that had a legitimate thing like, why is this an episode? You know, why? I thought this was all behind us. And I, I want to just say, I want nothing more than for everything to do with Mulligan Mint and all of the parties associated with these lawsuits and stuff to go away. But I have members of this audience who have silver on loan to Rob as part of his lease program. I have people that have done business with the Mint through me for almost a year now. And I have people that are very concerned about this, and, and it's my responsibility to make sure that whatever information is available is given to you uh, so that going forward, since I'm continuing to sell silver, you can make an informed decision about whether or not you want to buy and how you would like to do so and what risk might be involved with that. I've been very open about it, so when Rob asked to come on, on a day when I didn't have an interview scheduled and I could barely speak, it was a perfect opportunity to get information to you. Um, I don't want to talk about it any more than I absolutely have to, and I won't. And I don't think we'll have another full episode on it again. Um, and the uh, thing that Rob talked about doing on Reddit where he's going to answer questions and all, I want you to know that you know I'll do a post and say, hey, he's doing it over here. That's it. I'm not getting involved with this stuff, guys. Only what I have to do, that's my commitment to you, uh, if you have questions for Rob from yesterday's episode, you can post them. No reasonable question will be deleted. Calling somebody a liar, being a jackass, posting links to some other crap will be deleted because it's not germane to the subject. Please be respectful of each other, though that's all that I really ask, and be respectful of Rob. He's been nothing but respectful to this audience about this thing, and if you're not interested in what's going on in Mulligan Mint when we have a subject, a, a segment on it or something, use the fast-forward button and don't listen to it. It's that simple. I'm sorry I had to do a whole episode on it. I don't plan on doing it again. With that, I want to go ahead and introduce our special guest. Again, he was an incredible guest. I think we'll be having him on many times in the future. His name is Evan Folds, uh, one of the most informed people that I've ever spoken to on uh, concepts like living water, compost tea, bioenergetics, uh, growing soil, hydroponics, GMOs, water fluoridation, and anything in those means, staying healthy uh, with natural means, keeping your, your, your land itself healthy, your body healthy, and uh, taking control of your life. And that's what we're all about here. And it's a much more positive subject to be having a discussion about today. And with that, I'd like to uh, welcome Evan to the Survival Podcast. Evan, man, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jack. Good to be here. Hey, you are the founder and president of something called Progressive Gardens. It's a retail gardening store. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, first of all, and how you ended up doing this. I mean, were you into organic gardening your whole life, or like many of us, did you come about from a roundabout sort of way 
Yeah, I'm, I'm more on the many of us side. Um, it, it's kind of what's inspired a lot of what we do, actually, because I don't think anybody comes to the table with the information that they need to know to be successful, you know, growing their own food and, you know, at that, doing it successfully with, you know, sufficient nutrient density. So that, that was kind of what spawned all of this. I, I didn't, I grew up in a city, Greensboro, North Carolina. I, you know, I like to plants. I was into biology. I was a biology uh, got a biology degree from a major university. Didn't learn any of what I do at school, you know. Which, you know, again, is kind of sort of the passion that we bring to the table. But I, I was, I was uh, actually living in the Virgin Islands, oddly enough, and I'd gone the opposite direction after college. And wasn't really inspired with school. Didn't know what the next step would be. And the roommate that I developed down there uh, ended up working with a guy named Steve Storch, and he invented what's called the Vortex Brewer. And that's my wholesale company, Progress Earth, is the global distributor of that uh, now. This is about 10 years ago. And I met him and found a book called Secrets of the Soil that just blew my top. And it kind of gave me, you know, what I didn't know I was missing from school, if you will. And really inspired me towards the greater, uh, you know, magical qualities of, of life, if you will, the life force, um, you know, the, the subtle energies involved that kind of tie everything together. And it was from there that it kind of just, you know, told me I, this is what I needed to do. And back then the banks gave you money. And I actually got a loan with a friend of mine and we started the store. It was about almost 11 years ago now. Um, and it was just kind of a knee jerk. You know, I, I guess the the immediacy of it for me was local nutrient-dense food. I just saw that as inevitable, you know, kind of seeing the way the world was going. And we've been at it for about 10 years, and it's kind of exciting to see the world kind of coming to us now instead of us out having to beat a path. People are looking for composting and rain barrels and all of these things to be, you know, more self-sufficient, get out of the toxicity and kind of, you know, take the reins for themselves. So that, that's kind of where you find us today. Well, um, you know, you bring up a word there, vortex. Yeah. Um, so what what is the significance of like vortexing water? Um, yeah. What's the point? I mean, are we just spinning water in a circle and and saying now look what happened and it's magical or is there some, <laughs> is there some level of science behind it or? Yeah, there is and there isn't, and and I'll flesh that out a bit. There is in the sense that you know we we look on a very surface level in regards to how life works. We we think very materialistically, um, and we're taught. That. That's the scientific method that you learn in school. You have to replicate the, the hypothesis in order for it to become a law. Uh, unfortunately, the laws that we create don't stand up to common physics. You know, Newtonian physics breaks down at the speed of light, but that's what everybody learns in school. So we've kind of been ingrained in this box. And one of the things that's an easy bridge to start getting some idea of what we're missing is water because it's, it's extremely simple. It's the most common thing that you find in your daily existence, but it's also maybe the most complicated as well, and it's very misunderstood. Um, you think as important as it is, there'd be institutes dedicated to studying it, you know, and really there aren't in the United States. Uh, Dr. Gerald Pollack uh, at the University of Washington is kind of on the forefront of some of this stuff uh, if people want to look into him, but, you know, other countries do have institutes to study water, and the gist of it is it's not necessarily just mixing the solution. Um, I'd invite you to think about a river meandering in nature. You know, a wave curls when it crashes. If you have a drain in a bathtub, the water doesn't fall through it. It spirals. So there's actually a term called implosion that was championed by a guy named Victor Schauberger, who 
in my opinion, everybody should know about. And the fact that nobody does really kind of illustrates what's wrong with the world, in my opinion. But him and a guy named Rudolf Steiner, uh, who was the, the um, birthed the biodynamic method of agriculture, uh, make up kind of the backbone uh, of, w- of what spawned the Vortex Brewer. And so the magic moment is, is implosion. And if you think about how modern society uses energy, it's all explosive. It's the internal combustion engine. It's nuclear energy. It's things that are uh, very wasteful. There's very low energy transfer. I think nuclear energy may be somewhere in the realm of 10% energy transfer. So you lose the rest in heat and pollution, and they're very destructive and degrading. Whereas you know, implosion is how nature works. It's what basically is upbuilding. Um, it, it puts a, a positive uh, uh, net positive energy gain. You got 100% energy transfer. So at the moment when water is allowed an implosive moment, that's the water, the moment where it changes water. And, you know, there, there's about maybe 90, over 90, I think it's estimated, different ways that water can be measured. You know, specific gravity, resistivity, conductivity, surface tension, pH, you name it. So it's, it, the idea is not to get in there and reverse engineer water, but water has a sweet spot. And when it's allowed to implode, uh, it can then be – think about it like water being wetter. You know, and pe- most people – I guess the easiest way to describe it in layman's terms would be surface tension. That's a very easy one to, to take because people relatively understand it. You know, little water bugs on a lake or when you wax your car, your car, the water beads up, that kind of thing. So when you have stagnant water that's been sent through straight pipes and right angles or been filtered or industrialized in any way, it's dead. The surface tension is very high. Water is hugging itself uh, as hard as it can, in a sense. So if you drink, in a human sense, half your weight in ounces a day of dead water, for lack of a better word, that water, you can, you know, you're recommended to drink half your weight in ounces a day to be hydrated, but you can still be medically dehydrated doing that because the water is just irrigating your kidneys. It's not hydrating your cells. It's not re- reaching the, the point, the sweet spot, if you will. So making water wetter, you know, and this is kind of a simple way to understand it, but it's true. When it's hugging itself, the cell can't access it. So it basically makes water more able to bring nutrition and oxygen to a cell, and then when it leaves, carry away the toxin. Because There's frankly, definitely something to that because, you know, as, as preppers, we store water long term. Right. And if you take water out of a container that's been sitting around for a year and you drink it, it doesn't kill you or anything. But it doesn't it just doesn't taste right. And I don't yeah. mean even an off taste. It yeah. just doesn't taste right. Well, you take a glass and pour it back and forth in a glass three or four times. And, you know, I invite folks that have had water put up for a while to try that experiment. And you notice a significant difference in the taste of the water. And I, you know, that that's one at, at a very low-level way that you can understand some of the things you're talking about. Yeah, bingo. That That's spot on. And and it's basically, you know, I know what you mean by trying to describe the taste. It's not one of the things that we get feedback a lot. We have people that use the Vortex Brewer um, as for drinking water. And, and you can do it also by stirring it back and forth or disturbing it in the way that you, you described. But, you know, one of the things that we get feedback on when we invite people to do that, we got a lot of construction workers that come into our retail store, and we have these little things called a stir wand, and it's more or less like putting a, a, a crystal in your water. It basically creates it, – it, it offers the water a vibration that changes the molecular structure, which may be a far-out idea, but everything in existence has a specific vibration, every amino acid, every element, etc. So when water is exposed to these positive vibrations, it, it orients the water in the correct way. And the feedback we get, you know, when you're in a construction site, you drink a lot of water, and it'll sit heavy on your stomach, and it sloshes around. Maybe people will play sports and, you know, drink a lot of water. But, you know, they drink all the water that they need, and, and it 
it just hydrates them. They don't feel the same, you know, sloshing around. And it, you can watch it go into your skin rather than roll off of it. You know, there's very surface ways, like you described, that you can have an experience with it. But it, it's uh, it's a certainty in regards to water. It's much more than just wet. So we start out with water, and one of the big things you guys do, and I imagine you're using your Vortex water for this, is making compact, compost tea. Right. For folks that aren't familiar, because most of the people listening should know what compost is. Right. Uh, but what's compost tea, and how and why do you use it and brew it? Yeah, um, compost is like, like concentrating soil, if you will, primarily biologically. Because the thing to really drill down on in regards to compost is that microbes make compost. So if you think about a forest, you know, the trees don't eat the leaves. They eat what the microbes make of it. That's basically what composting is. We just put it in one spot and give it a name. Um, so what you're doing when you're composting is you're concentrating a natural process for human benefit. And you're, you're speeding the process up by conscious inoculation of microbes, turning the pile. You know, you can actually turn it too much, but maybe once a week. So there's things that you can do to speed the process up. In compost tea, what you're doing is you're taking a really – you know, ideally high-quality compost that has, I like to think about the soil food web as all of the fish in the sea. And the real significance of it, because we can't see the microbes, is imagine you took all the plankton out of the ocean. You know, the whole system would shut down. So what you're doing when you're cultivating compost is you're using microbes to create perfect plant food. What you do when you're with compost tea is you're taking that finished compost, aerating water, which is accomplished through the circulation of the vortex brewer and incidentally you can do it in a five gallon bucket with an air stump air stone and an air pump like you would set up an aquarium uh, but when you aerate the water the, the microbes can breathe just like the fish would in an aquarium and then you feed the microbes organic fertilizers kelp fish molasses bat guano etc and in the presence of food and oxygen the microbes grow to extraordinary concentrations and the relevance of that is that when you have that high concentration, one, it's cost-effective because you're growing a lot of the benefit. Uh, but two, it's a very concentrated means of delivering these teammates, uh, micro, microorganisms, into your soil. And when you do, it's a bit like, you know, you can't make bread without yeast. You know, you can't really make soil or compost, for that matter, without microbes. So you're, you're kind of stimulating the teamwork, t- teamwork in your soil to the point where the more you mature that, the less you have to fertilize. And, you know, think about a forest. It grows trees. You don't have to fertilize it, you know, but it's 100 years biologically mature, and the soil's never been killed through development or chemical application, et cetera. So it's just a very efficient means of growing microbes is essentially what it's about. So how does uh, a Vortex brewer that you guys market differ from what you just described with a five-gallon bucket? Because, like, a 10-gallon Vortex brewer is, like, 500 bucks. So mm, right. if I do it with an airstone and a bucket – What's the, what's the difference? Yeah, basically, the, the price is in mostly, most of the times it's in the pump um, because you need a higher amount of air and flux to move the water because the significance of the Vortex Brewers, there's no water pumps. There's no filters. It's totally unimpeded circulation. You're using air through an airlift mechanism to move the water around uh, and okay. create the implosion. So just to be clear on the description of that, the difference in the five-gallon bucket versus a, a, a vortexing the solution is essentially – you know, I guess you would say treating water as a nutrient. When you vortex it, you change the water. You make what you're using within it more available to the living system. If you're doing it passively in a bucket, there's nothing wrong with that. It's still growing microbes to extraordinary concentrations. It's just not affecting the water in the same way, so the delivery is not as efficient. But I would also say that you could absolutely stir a bucket and accomplish the implosion. And, and it's kind of interesting to think about. If you can imagine 
putting a stick or your arm in a bucket and, and swirling it in one direction. You create an explosive vortex. The, the, the water hugs the edges of the container. It's not until you reverse the flow that you create the moment of implosion. So it's actually the reversal of the direction in a passive bucket without a drain that is, is what is creating the magical moment. In a, in a vortex brewer, because you have a drain, you constantly perpetually have a, a, an implosive vortex. So as long as you accomplish that implosion in a passive five-gallon bucket through stirring, you really could make an argument you could do it either way. And it would take, I would say, at least 20 minutes on a stir up to an hour, which is what uh, Rudolf Steiner uh, suggested. And that sounds like a long time, and it somewhat is in the modern world, but I would actually really invite any listeners to try it because it's, you know, very rarely do we allow ourselves to sit in one place for an hour, you know, and it's yeah. quite a meditative experience putting your intention into what you're doing, and it's actually quite therapeutic. Well, and if somebody gets really good results with it, they might start to see the value in your machine yeah. so that they don't have to keep doing it every time they want 10 gallons. Well, and maybe a back door, you know. I mean, there's always yeah. – it, it's a convenience thing on that level. If you're yeah, into it, you sure. can stir it, stir it, man. We're all for it, you know. I, I like that you said that. I, I, I like – see, because I would have called bullshit and probably put you off the air if you would have said, oh – we have a special way ours goes in a circle. Right. No, it's about getting the information out there, man. That's, that's what you can do it. It does work. Ours will do it for you. Got uh, it. That, that just gave you instant buy-in and credibility. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, you mentioned Rudolf Steiner, and another guy I kind of picked up on looking at your review, uh, your, your site, was a guy named v Victor Schaugenberger. Schaugenberger. Who are these right. two guys, and, and what's their significance to what you're doing? Yeah, well, I mentioned them as an inspiration to the brewer that primarily um, – Schauberger's insight was implosion. He, he was a, a forester in Austria back in the, I think he was a forester in the 1910s, 20s, somewhere in there. And he spent basically the large majority of, of a year out in the woods. And he basically just intuited this relationship with water and saw all of these amazing phenomenon, you know, like fish spiraling in a lake to catch prey and you know, rocks floating in a moving river or trout sitting still in a moving stream. You know, and he just kind of started asking these questions that really, in his later years, spawned inventions that, to be honest with you, it's a bit like Nikola Tesla. If anybody's ever looked into him, you know, the information that they brought forward is really not readily available. And you can get cynical really quick about why that is, but it's the information that they were trying to put forward. Basically, free energy is, uh, you know, a, a pretty large industry these days. So, you know, you can draw your own conclusions there, but the bottom line is, he tapped into a means of working with energy in a positive way. So, for example, if you if you rifle a, a tube in the correct way, you can actually compel water to move forward rather than having to pump it. Uh, and he actually, you know, dabbled in uh, flying saucers and using implosive uh, mechanisms to create the force there. Um, so it's it's a fascinating insight. But the primary means in which we work with his uh, what he brought forward is implosion, and and so that that nugget uh, coupled with Steiner's development of what's called biodynamic agriculture, and it's you know when you really get into it, if you're not prepped on you know some of these concepts, like you know for example, there's more to life than what's physically here, you know, and, and I say that with an assumption that most people would resonate with that on some level. Now the, the argument comes into well, exactly how does that happen, and I don't think that that's really the point. But when you get you know you have this approach that you know, life is comprised of a physical, mineral, biological, and energetic component. If you really look at it in that in that perspective, then and you're aware of it, you can work with it. So Steiner brought forward um, the idea of planting calendars. You know, the idea of sow by the moon, which is kind of in every farmer's almanac. 
that's a remnant of a biodynamic approach. If the moon has an influence on plant growth, all of the, the celestial cycles and the planets also do as well. So there's different times that are more advantageous to plant for rooting crops, to harvest, to sow seed, to do all kinds of different activities. Um, and so he brought that forward. And then I think primarily what Steiner brought forward was a means of making compost. It can take up to a year to perform. And it's a bit like witchcraft, almost, if you will, in a good way. Um, but you're burying cow horns. You're really taking advantage of the natural rhythms of the earth to enhance what the living system is attempting to do. Um, and it's something that's totally, we have blinders on in the, in the modern world um, regarding. So it, it's kind of a bit like we've lost all of the, uh, the direct connection with the relevance of it. And we've kind of come to a time, in my opinion, where we can re-intellectualize ourselves to the potential of what we're doing. And Steiner's a great insight in that regard. So th- those two guys are definitely work, worth a web search. Uh, and I'd, I'd be happy to recommend some books if people are so inclined. Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, Secrets of the Soil would be the one I would start with. Um, it's P- Peter Tompkins and Bird. I can't remember his first name. That book changed my life, and I don't say that lightly. Um, and then Steiner's Agriculture Course is eight, eight days of lectures that he gave at the request of farmers. It was actually the first reaction to chemical farming. You know, it's interesting. These farmers in Europe were feeding their, you know, after the World Wars, we developed fertilizers and pesticides. That's where all of these things came from. Um, and so you have these nitrates and these you know, toxic rescue chemistry, if you will, that are being used in agriculture and living systems. And these farmers were getting diseases in their animals they'd never seen before and came to Steiner and said, look, we know that we're going in the wrong direction. How do we regenerate the life force of our farms? And that's essentially the question that spawned Steiner's uh, delivery. And he spent eight days downloading this information that is is really mind-blowing. I mean, every time I engage it, a, a paragraph's like a chapter, and it's endlessly fascinating, but it's a bit heavy, uh, admittedly. So I, I like to tell people to start with Secrets of the Soil, and then, um, you know, that's kind of the biodynamic end of things. In terms of Schauberger, there's a book called Living Energies that is basically the textbook of what's available of his uh, discoveries, and it was given to a, an author named Callum Coates by his son, and it's got a lot of the schematics in there, and it you know talks about the water cycle, and you'll pick things up that just make you go, ah, that makes you know it's just kind of that aha moment. That's why these things are the way they are. So you know, start there, and you know you'll you'll know where to go once you find those. Yeah, definitely. Um, you had on your notes you wanted to talk about GMOs. Yeah. And I'd say here you're a little bit preaching of the choir. We've been bashing that. Uh, thing in for for quite a long time, but I mean, what are your thoughts on the GMO thing and how people can avoid them? Because to me, it's a huge problem on multiple layers. But where 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 are you coming from with the, the GMO angle? Yeah, well, first, appreciate your attention to that. We need more of it in every way. It, it's 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 mostly the fact I think that comes down to personal choice. Like for me, on a personal level, it's the fact that we can eat food that we don't know what it is is just. <laughs> really unbelievable you know um so that's kind of almost a common sense one but you know there's also a lot of research that shows it's it's a bit um well a bit presumptuous is the wrong way to put that but for example when you put a, a, a fundamentally altered organism into soil the the you know half the energy a plant makes for itself is exuded through the roots it's called an exudate and it's basically like a little micro meal for a microorganism and it's saying, look, if I'm deficient in boron, here, guys, here's, you know, food for the boron cyclers, and the boron cyclers come and get to work, you know. 
And there's an intelligence there, you know, that's a back and forth between all of life. Symbiotic relationship, I guess, would be the key word. But the idea is when you change the plant and it's delivering a different signal, it, it creates haywire on levels that are a bit like if you eat fast food, you can live, but, you know, it's going to catch up with you. You know, we make movies out of it, you know. It's, it's kind of the same thing, and it's kind of a trick because you can see, oh, well, I can spray, you know, inordinate amounts of chemicals onto my crops and kill everything but what I want, which, you know, on a surface, somebody's not thinking through it, makes maybe makes sense, you know? Um, yeah. And not to mention a brilliant business model, as sinister as it is from the GMO companies, because they sell the chemicals too. But, you know, so in that regard, it, it's about, it degrades the soil. There's actually studies, there's a, a woman named Dr. Vandana Shiva, I'm not sure if you've heard of her, but she, Absolutely. she's amazing. Awesome woman. Yeah, man, she's a hero, man. I saw her speak maybe eight years ago at this conference and been following her ever since. But she's, her, uh, Navdanya, her, her research leg of what she does shows that the de- degradation in microbes in the soil simply from those crops feeding the soil an inconsistent message. So it creates these ripple effects that really are a gray area, and you can't put your finger on this is what did it. But, you know, I mean, you can take something like gluten. There's a 50% gluten increase in crops over the last 50 years. Now, that's not necessarily a GMO issue, but it it absolutely is from the commercialization of food because it makes the cupcake stickier, you know. And the result is these particles are so big that our gut can't handle them, and you get all of my wife is intolerant, you know, and my brother-in-law has celiac disease, like a molecule, and he's hallucinating more or less, you know. And, and yeah. not in a good way. So it just creates these things that you can't reverse engineer, and that's almost what allows them to perpetuate. So we kind of have to run our mouths until we get it, I think. So keep up the good work in that regard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I see it on, 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 on two layers, and you just gave me a third with the effects of the soil interactions. Yeah. The first is kind of that, which is you've taken a cell, and you've generally either used a gene gun or a transmutogenic virus, to alter the genetic structure of the cell in a way that nature never intended. Right. It's not like breeding a Labrador and a poodle. Right. Right. That's a natural cross. These are crosses that could never occur in nature. And now just the reaction between your body cells that are optimized for, for, to absorb cells of food that your body's meant for and now absorbing a foreign substance can play haywire with the body. Right. Added gluten, certainly, but in, in ways that we may not even understand for another hundred years that we're damaging ourselves at the cellular level. Honestly, though, the bigger concern is not that they're modifying the food that I'm eating. It's what they're modifying it to do, and you touched on it there. You're now modifying soy, which I don't think I should be eating anyway, right. but let's just say you are, to be sprayed with glyphosate. Mm. And, and now the person is is eating food that's not just has glyphosate on it. It's absorbed it through its roots in the soil into its cellular level, and now the person's ingesting glyphosate or 2,4-D or, you know, atrazine and all of these other chemicals that you would never be able to put on food and we would never be eating if you had not done the modification. So even if everything they were telling us about how safe it is is true, and I don't believe it for a second, but even if they did, you're increasing massively the, the purposeful uptake of toxin by the body, mm-hmm. and anybody that thinks that o- is okay, maybe just ate too much you know, uh, glyphosate-laden soy or something, <laughs> and has lost the capacity to be rational. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, that's bingo. You know, it's, it's on so many different levels, and it's a bit, maybe an aside, but not really, like water fluoridation. You know, it's these policies that you know, are, are put in place, and 
it's a big experiment. You know, there's no study that's proven these things, and and it's really maddening to the point where you consider that people can be medicated outside of their consent. You know, people can be fed food, and you know, yeah, sure, you should have your wits about you, but if it doesn't say it on the label. I mean, is the average person going to look through? And that's what the FDA is there for, and their statement on it is that GMO crops are essentially the same as regular Generally crops. recognized as safe. You know? Well, here's my thing. If you want to say that? Fine. How about on the label, then, you include everything that's in the food, like glyphosate there you go. and atrazine, right? Yeah. So you don't want to label it GMO? Fine. Put this product. This product does contain glyphosate. Yeah, that's that's exactly. And you know why they don't label it, of course, because nobody would buy it. And, you know, exactly. So it's just kind of almost too obvious when you get down and, and look at it for what it is. On fluoridation, let's let's talk about that. It's interesting you go there. It's where I was going next, too. Hmm. Um, I remember seeing this video on YouTube, and it wasn't one of these, like, David Icke, the reptile people are coming to get us in Florida right. or whatever right. things. This was a uh, news report. I believe it was in Tennessee. They were down at a water treatment plant, and the guy that had, you know, like the guy that did the job of dumping it in got so tired of dumping the stuff in and reading on their deadly poison toxin that he called the news in and said, come look at, I have to do this, come look at what it is. And they were showing two things. One was that the bags were coming from China and were labeled as industrial waste. Mm -hmm. And two, that when they would flush out these, these, these treatment tanks and move it in, that it, over time it would build up this residue of crap that looked like Kind of like one of those, like if you were when you were kids, you did like these experiments with like crystals and stuff. Uh -huh. Kind of looked like that. Right. And he said like that's not fluoride. And they're like, well, what is that? He goes, I don't know. Right. Right. So it's not just that it's fluoride. It's like what is? It's like you know they're scraping it out of smokestacks as an industrial byproduct in China. Yeah. It's a toxic substance that if you dumped it on the ground, they would put you in in, in prison for and fine you for. But then they put it in the water and then they get it into the environment that way, and that's okay. It's it, it's that's really literally the way it is, and and the reality of why it's coming from China. There's actually 17 distributors of either sodium fluoride or hydrofluorosilicic acid in North America, and there's a, a program that some people are catching wind of that you can actually call, uh, or si actually the better way to do it is through one, a decision maker in your town, if it's a city council member or a county commissioner or whoever makes the decisions on your water supply, board of directors, whatever it may be, that you, you have a champion within that decision-making uh, faction to send a letter asking if you've got NSF certification on the chemical that's being distributed. The short, short story of it is that they don't. Um, it's just, you know, mm. in my town, it's been done since 1955, and I researched the city minutes, city minutes all the way since 1955, and it's never been addressed since then. And if you think about the fact that people's teeth were falling apart out back in the 40s and 50s, basically candy and sugars, you know, the sugar lobby came about. And there's a lot of backstory to it, and we could probably be here for days, but the short of it is it is an industrial byproduct. And hydrofluorosilicic acid, which is what we use in our town, comes from smokestacks in Aurora, North Carolina. I know exactly where it comes from. It's sold to a middleman. That that material is then put directly into the water. The only thing that's tested for in that entire sequence is the amount of fluorine element in the water after it's added, not the radioactive component, the arsenic, the cadmium, you know, all kinds of unbelievable materials that come from, from an, an industrial waste. And, you know, I'd add, from a common sense perspective, you know, we spit toothpaste out, you know. There's no method of, well, of action within the body. And I believe it says on the back of a tube of toothpaste, if you accidentally consume more than the recommended amount right. of 
rushing, call poison control immediately. That's exactly right. And the sad part is what's in toothpaste is actually pharmaceutical grade. So it's not an industrial byproduct. It, it's not the same animal. It's actually hey, – Whoa, 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 whoa. That's, that's new to me. Okay, yeah. so what you're telling me now is if Crest took the shit they put in our water and put it in their toothpaste, the FDA would have a problem with this, but it's okay for the water company to put it in our water? That's correct. That's correct. Oh, because, nice. because drinking water is not I regulated like as a food. I just do arrows for my quiver. <laughs> uh, I didn't talk over you, but really that's – because I've been, you know, every time I bring this up, I'm painted as a tin hatter and stuff like that, yeah. and I'm not. I mean, I'm one of the most rational survival voices there is out there. Right. And 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 to me, you know, taking industrial waste and put in my water, I had a problem with that. Right. Um, the fact that you're telling me what goes in our water can't go in our toothpaste. Yeah. No, it's it's made specifically for that purpose, and and it in the, the the problem is you have. Local jurisdiction over fluoridation, in other words, in my scenario, the local t- uh, board of directors, our water supply was transitioned to a public company, which is a nightmare in and of itself. But it, it, the people that decide whether it goes in, um, you know, they're, they're essentially saddled with all of the, the precedent that they developed to, to establish the infrastructure and all these things, which resist them from dealing with it. But the, the, this hydrofluorosilicic acid, um, like you said, it, it's a pharmaceutical grade in the, in, the te- in the toothpaste. And you put it better than I did. You, know, you can't put what's in the toothpaste in the water, but the other way around. So from a local decision-making standpoint, I can call the CDC and say, well, why do you mandate you know, and not mandate is the wrong word. Why do you endorse fluoridation to be a policy? And they say, well, we didn't make you do it. And that saddles the local municipality with, without the resources to test it, saying, well, we have to trust the expert. And then the burden of proof is on people like you and I who are, you know, putting the right foot forward but have, don't have the resources to test it. And so sure. then you have the FDA whose jurisdiction is food, and drinking water is not considered a food. So you've got all of this, like, you know, angling that you have to, to finagle and at the at the end of the day when you get to the people who are making the decisions they're most of the time the most uninformed um and it's just really kind of a nightmare but it, it is well, dedication out of, outside of consent people, most of these people their expert would be their dentist right who's brainwashed by the ada and and they they would you know say well you know frank is there you know the guy's probably had his kids going to this dentist for for 15 years right and, and and trust him to know about things like fluoride. Is there anything to this? Oh, they're all they're all nutters. Yeah. Right. So you know that's his that's his expert uh, uh, counsel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's who he goes to for an important decision like do I medicate sixty thousand people in my town? Right. Right. Outside of their consent. And and the, the the sad part about it is that the dentist. I've got a friend who's a dentist, and there was about five years ago there was an incident where the bone cancer was the correlation between in bone cancer and boys in this. Uh, it's a, a thesis that the student did in the Northeast. I can't remember what school it was now, but basically the, the professor was on the board of the ADA, and he suppressed the study findings. And it, the mainstream news caught wind of it, and it kind of was a big deal for maybe a day or something like that. But the bottom line is the ADA sent out a press release that day with talking points to all the members of the dentistry on how to respond to relevant questions that people were asking. And at that time, it was funny because I was kind of asking them, you know, what are your thoughts? And it was party line. You know, I, I learned it in school. I saw the studies. There's nothing wrong with it. And he saw this email, 
and it got his wheels turning. And he read a book called The Fluoride Deception, and maybe you heard yep. of it. And it's a very good treatise on, on how ridiculous the policy is. And he's since changed his ways, and he works in a low-income uh, in Duplin County, you know, maybe 10,000 people in this county. And he uses a calcium supplement. You know, he, he, he doesn't use fluoride in his practice. So it's, it's absolutely attainable. Uh, it's just outside of the norm. And, and I'd just say that going to the dentist and getting that recommendation, as you described, is no different than going to a doctor and they give everybody the same pill. They don't have yeah, to change exactly. your diet. They're going to the extension service and saying, here's your Roundup and your miracle Grow." You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, try, if you trust them for that, then I guess you trust them for everything. I mean, yeah. I also look at it this way. I, I, I believe it's very detrimental to our health, especially given the source. But I think the fluoride itself, it, it used internally that way, is a toxin. Yeah. Uh, we, we know that. But if it was good, if it actually did what they said, I still don't feel government has a right to medicate people without consent. Right, so it would be like you have the you have um you have uh, bronchitis, mm. right, and it's a bacterial bronchitis that, that penicillin really will help, right. right? I would have no right as government to come knock on your door, go, I heard you have bronchitis, and you're like, yeah, I got bronchitis, and I say, okay, come out here, and we grab you and give you an injection of penicillin, and I go, right, that'll fix you right up, but I didn't want that, right. I don't care, right. go back in. Now, people would look at that and say very clearly. It doesn't matter that it's a good treatment for the illness. There's no right of authority to do that. Yeah. And, and then my next question to them, how is it any different then that they put this substance into your water? It's, it's really not. I mean, it's against, it's, the, it's against the Nuremberg Codes, you know, the Medicaid outside of consent. That's established international law. Um, and, you know, the bottom line is it's also indiscriminate. I mean, what's stopping you to drink five glasses of water a day and I drink ten? Would any exactly. doctor in their right mind deliver twice the medication on happenstance? That's that's not a way to responsibly well, take medication. What's, what's, the, what's the fraction of uh, fluoride that gets applied to the teeth versus the amount of fluoride that ends up in the body when given in something you would consume? All right. it, to me, it's always been like, well, suntan lotion prevents sunburn, so drink your suntan lotion. <laughs> That's, and it might prevent your lips perfect. from getting burned. That's perfect. That's right? But it's, it's, it's not going to actually help in the way that suntan lotion is designed to work. No, that, that's precisely it. You know? and, and at the end of the day, it's, it's really indiscriminate medication against consent. And you know, the problem is there, it's, if you think about if you buy a fluoride filter for your home, majority of ones that are available other than reverse osmosis are uh, made of bone char. They actually take... Uh, animal bones and they burn them and char them up like charcoal and that's the filter which should tell you everything fluorine the only form it occurs in nature is calcium fluoride which is if, if you have people that are into rocks and gems is fluorite and it's pretty stone but it's very insoluble you can't dissolve it in water the HFS and the sodium fluoride that are used are extremely soluble, which is why they're so caustic. And like you mentioned previously, it would be they'd be fined millions of dollars for releasing it into the, in the environment unless they did a slow release through the water supply. And, and yep. the sad part, to top it all off, is half of 1% of water is actually ingested through the public water supply anyway. So, you know, the majority of it is agricultural or industrial-based. It's literally a slow-release toxic Waste. It, it, and, and, a, and a huge amount of it, even when consumed, is released as urine and other waste and goes into our sewage systems where it's not filtered out no matter what they do, and it ends up, again, right back in the same place. So we're taking a toxin dumping on, on the planet and throughout our biological systems no matter what. 
I, I agree. Filtering is probably the best option there for people, unlike yeah. myself, that have a well where right. uh, you know we don't have somebody adding to our water. Right. Well, it, it, lucky, you know, because it's it's something that you got to keep your wits about you. Because it, it, the one thing I would say, because you could spend an hour talking about the health detriments, but look into the the calcification of the pineal gland, and it's something that's very not very well understood, but the pineal gland is, is arguably the root of consciousness. And the, there's very new research that shows that fluorine is, uh, accumulates in the pineal gland, and it disrupts our ability to carry our will into action. And it's, it's crippling, and it's a, it's, there's no smoking gun. And, and to my mind, in my personal opinion, I believe very strongly that it's one of the major reasons why people can't wake up to, to what it is that we need to do to make sense of the world we live in. Um, you know, I don't want to be a, a like I said, a tin hat conspiracist or anything, yeah. but, but here's how I look at this. If you're the government, and even if in the beginning when you implement this policy, you've listened to dentists or whatever, and you believe that you're doing the right thing, if it, if it happens to have a byproduct of making your, your citizenry more compliant, oh, so much the better. Mm. Um, and if you're a pharmaceutical company, who treats illness rather than cures disease, oh, so much the better. Yeah. Right? I mean, you look at – I just talked about this the other day on the show. Why do we have a food and drug administration? Why don't we have a food administration and a drug administration <laughs> separately, a, right? Good point. Because it's because these two industries are wholesale largely owned by the same people – with one making you sick and the other treating your illness. Wow. And, and if, you, if you lay on top of that the fact that we've been doing something now for about 80 years that impedes a person's ability to think cognitively, and you look at the average dumbass in our society, yeah. it, it, it starts to answer a lot of questions. Wow. wow. We're trading arrows for the quiver because I, <laughs> I honestly, as much as time as I spend in this, I've never thought about the FDA the Food and Drug Administration. That, that is kind of blowing my mind right now. Well, it's like alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Yeah, yeah, it is, well, right? I'll tell you why, because that makes no sense. Alcohol and tobacco, yeah, okay, right. I, I get it. T highly taxed, um, <laughs> both kind of like a drug, sort of like a pseudo drug, yeah. a legalized drug. Okay, firearms. I don't know about you, I've never sniffed gunpowder um, or like uh, free-based uh, brass. Oh, but uh, why put those three together? They're your three main barter implements outside of the financial system. That's uh, you go to that's any true. society run on a black market. It's guns, cigarettes, and booze right. that the majority of transactions occur with. That's that's wild. I, I appreciate that perspective, and I just want to be clear about one thing, just so that we can frame this properly. The federal government does not mandate fluoridation. Not at all. No, they they have. But the, here's the irony: is that the Surgeon General calls it one of the ten best public health campaigns in the last century. So the 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 policy is a healthy over and above endorsement, and then putting the ability to remove it and add it on a local level. Correct. So they set themselves up as the expert. Hey, believe us, and your local municipalities. The burden of proof for you and I walking into the city council is we'll prove that it's bad. Whereas, you know, right. of course you should prove that it's good before you put in. That's a whole other discussion. But the point yeah. is, you can yeah. call the CDC and say, well, you know, why are you making us doing it? Like I said, and they say, well, we didn't make you do it. We and you, you, do you know, it. and round and round and round you go because the local municipality can never prove it. So I say that also to ins inspire people. There, every day, I'm, I'm pretty You can do this at the local level. You can do it at the local level. Exactly. Yeah. You can do it. Don't feel like you're burdened to something that you've got to change a federal law. Just I feel like they flick a booger off of themselves onto the local government. So if there's ever <laughs> yeah. a lawsuit, they're not liable. Well, that's totally true. 
you know? And, yeah, and that's, that's... that's actually the way you go about it locally is you, you make the city attorney aware of the liability because you tank this stuff through the town. And yeah. there's in Massachusetts, there was a spill of HFS and it ate the concrete. And it didn't hurt. Yeah, right. It didn't hurt anybody. But think about the liability there. And does your city attorney have insurance for the fluorine you're tanking across town? No. Yeah. So that's, that's what gets them moving. Not not it's bad for you because then you got to carry the burden of proof. You hit them in their pocketbook and then they start listening to you. Interesting. Yeah. So hey, look, let's switch gears a little bit. Yep. We we are really big on self sufficiency around here for a lot a lot of reasons. Um, you're big into. Uh, food production uh, yep. and, and things like making nutrient dense foods and things like that, organic uh, composting, bioenergetics, all this stuff. Mm. What do you think the best thing a person can do to become self sufficient in food production is? Oh, if I had to boil that down, I would say start a compost pile. Um, okay. Simply because it's free and it's easy. Um, the main idea being that you have to add the microbes to your compost. Something that really. I see it almost every day, somebody that has a compost pile and is turning it and going through all the right motions, maybe balancing their carbon and nitrogen ratios, these kinds of things, doing everything by the book, but they haven't fully considered microorganisms. You can't, and I'll say it again, you can't make bread without yeast. You can't make compost without microbes. So turning compost and trying to create it under the assumption that microbes will just parachute in or jump over the fence, it's not happening. And so you, you have to initially inoculate it, and it's important. One of the, the, the strengths of the product line that we have is that the, the microbes come from a 350-year-old certified organic biodynamic farm. It's literally before the pilgrims they were farming this area. Mm. And so it's been in the same family the whole time, never farmed chemically once. And the soil food web is completely intact. So when you brew these microbes up and use them in your compost or your landscape, you're adding a full complexity of the potential of life, which... I would add we know 5% of bacteria and 10% of fungi at the rate of discovery. So we yeah. know very relatively nothing. So when you buy a, a natural product that has organisms printed on the label, it's not bad, but that means a human selected them because we know they're good and added them to the product. And that, yeah. that's extremely limited. you know. And it, uh, the numbers you just gave, we know the surface of the moon better than we know the, 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 the fungi and bacteria in our soil. That's true. You know, it's 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 kind of alarming how little we know. And it, but the cool thing is, it's not that you have to to figure it all out. You know, I mean, you can restrict the calcium a chicken gets, and it still lays an egg. You know, like yeah. you don't have to understand how the alchemical process of that happens, or you know, a worm gut. You can what it eats. Its manure is ten times higher in phosphorus and fifteen times higher in calcium. You know, how that happens, there's no scientist on earth that can tell you, but it doesn't mean we're not going to eat eggs or use worm castings. You know what I mean? So yeah. you don't have to get into the complexity, but just know, you know, be awed by it, you know, and, and find something that's from a natural source. And if you start with that, you'll have success because, you know, if you read about composting, what you do is you add a cup of garden soil to the pile. The point of doing that, most people don't think through why they're doing that, but the reason you're doing that is to add the microbes. Unfortunately, when if you live on a developed piece of property, it takes a thousand years to make an inch of soil. And if you develop a piece of property, you're going to take the top foot two feet of soil off to raise the land. You're going to bring in cheap fill that's sanitized, and the contractor could care less the biological diversity. So the point is you're dealing with an insufficient deck, you know. And, and if you don't consciously add it back, you're not going to be able to, to, to really take the system to where you don't need to fertilize and where it takes, you know, it gets on its own two feet and takes care of itself. And that, that's really... If you boil down what we do in a collective sense, it's kind of a garden consultant. 
You know, it's it's, yeah. it's how do you how to empower people pretty much to do what it is that you're empowering people to do is take care of themselves. You know, and and not be yoked to a product line indefinitely. And we find that to be a much more compelling business model that fits with our values. But we also find it to be a better business approach because people get really excited about it and they tell more people. Yeah, sure. You don't want to make somebody a customer for life. You yeah. want to make them a customer for life by their choice. So in other words, I'll come back to you for the things I need, but the things I can do on my own, I'll do on my own. That's right. Because there's some low-tech solutions to some of these issues. So for instance, uh, when we clean out the chicken coop, we make a great big compost pile using the waste from that, uh, household waste and a bottle of other things. That brings a lot of diversity, and there's a lot of bacteria going on there. But the other thing we'll do is we'll just take a big 15-gallon Rubbermaid tub like they sell for feed use at Tractor Supply. We set that next to the compost pile, and we fill it with water, and every day the geese go shit in there. Right. So as the composting's being done, huh. every other day we're dumping 15 gallons of goose shit-infused water right. into that compost, and it just takes off. That's cool. And you go, you know, you get a pile 21 days, it's fully composted, and the interesting thing is, is you get a lot of life into your compost. You don't lose the volume you would expect. When people make a compost pile and they just throw all their kitchen waste in there, they don't really turn it. They don't really infuse it with anything. They end up with like, you know, you start out with this pile that's, you know, two and a half, three feet high, and they end up with like a foot of compost. Right. When you compost with these life-infusing methods you're talking about and I'm talking about today, you don't see that volume dissipation. Right. Yeah, and that's that says something there right away. You're you're burning up less. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because it, you can approach that on several levels. You know, if you one of the reasons the cow is used in biodynamic agriculture is because a cow has four stomachs, and right. it, it completely digests what it what it ingests. And so, if you compost a ton of cow manure, you end up with about a ton of material. If you do the same thing with horse manure or you know other forms of manure that aren't as properly digested, uh, if you will, then you do lose some of the volume. But, but, but the interesting thing is, in an easy way to think about it, because people, you know, they ask a lot, don't, you know, what do I have to do when I'm composting? And people feel overwhelmed because they feel the responsibility of having to turn it and do all of these different things. And the, the simplicity of it is, if you, if you have your pile and it's not properly inoculated, meaning you haven't added the microbes to the pile sufficient to accomplish the composting, then nothing happens unless you turn it. You know, and, and the, the exercise is essentially one of oxidation. You know, you're exposing the material to air and you're changing it, you're stabilizing it, but you're making mulch. You're not making humus, you know. Humus is the end result yeah. of biological decomposition. So, and I would also say, I'd be very interested in your feedback. I'd be happy to send you a sample um, to try out and, you know, maybe talk about on the show to add sure. to your operation. Because, you know, one of the things that's important to remember is that the microbes that make manure in an animal gut, because we've got to remember, it's no different than us, right? When you get sick, you have to take antibiotics, you eat some yogurt or probiotic when you're done. The compost is the gut of your landscape. But the microbe flora are different. So the microbes that make manure are different than the microbes that make plant food in the soil. So what happens a lot in our town, we have a, a big turkey manure, uh, turkey industry around us, and we got a bunch of pond trees. We're on the coast in North Carolina. So we got pine bark and turkey manure. That's 99% of what you can find in bulk. And I've done the biological testing on all of it. It's not really compost at all. It's called compost, but it's, it's not in the true sense of the word. There's nothing alive in it. They don't use anything living to create it. They make it on concrete floors. They steam it. They turn it. They oxidize it. The point is it's mulch. And the problem is when people use manure, and this would be the same for any animal more or less, when you use manure in a dead soil, you're kind of spinning your wheels. 
because the, the, the manure has a soluble relevance as a fertilizer, don't get me wrong, on some level. But the majority of the product is not made available until soil microbes can work on it. So, you know, what, what I like to tell people in terms of keeping these things in check is imagine mowing your lawn, you know, in the, in the, in the, when you first mow it, it's green. After about a week, it turns brown. So the idea is it's nitrogen-based when it's fresh, the greens. It's carbon-based when it's brown and it's aged. So you want to balance about a two-to-one to volume carbon to nitrogen. And if you get that right within a general range, you don't have to measure it or anything like that. It's more of a feel. But when you get that right, the microbes have the carbon they need for energy and the nitrogen they need to reproduce, and the system can sustain itself on a much more efficient level. So you know that idea of the browns and the greens, what's happening with the greens is that the microbe is fixing the nitrogen to a carbon molecule, and it's keeping it in the soil as fertilizer. Whereas if you just let it age, what you're, what's happening is it's just off-gassing. You know, 80% of the air that we breathe is nitrogen. So it's basically four fertilizations a year, if, you know, for example, if you can keep your lawn clippings in your lawn instead of bagging. Uh, so there's all kinds of benefits that you get in terms of being self-sufficient in that regard. Very cool. Uh, one of the things I'll ask you about real quick, and we won't go deep into yeah. it even if, if you have, but just it, it's fun to exchange information with knowledgeable people. Yeah. One of the things I've just learned about and I haven't really dug into yet is what's called IMO. Mm. Are you familiar with that? I don't believe that I am. What, what is that? It's a Korean gardening technique of cultivating, and IMO stands for indigenous microorganisms. Oh, okay. And you start out with rice. And then if you want to cultivate a bacterial-dominant organism, you go to an area like a compost pile or a place where there's a lot of manure where this is heavily uh, bacterial, Uh or let's say, uh, you know, leafed forest litter if you want to cultivate a a fungal-dominated IMO, Uh and you you capture it with the rice, uh, it starts to grow, and then you feed it sugar and ferment it and bring it up to huge levels, and then you want to teach it to once again basically toughen it up so that it can go back into a tougher environment. So now you feed it like a brand or a carbon-based thing, huh. uh, and there's like four levels of it. And by the fourth level, it's you can use it at any level, but by the fourth level, it's fully developed. That's, and that's cool. That's a bit like EM, Effective Microorganisms, which is an anaerobic approach, and it actually came from the West, I mean from the East, uh, over in Japan. Um, but no, I'm not familiar with that acronym. I, I'll look more into that because that's, yeah, that's totally relevant, man. You know, you want to get the microbes where you are, you know, ideally. Yeah, that's they're cool. adapted. Like you were saying, what made me think about it is when you were talking about where you guys are working with the stuff being there for, you know, back before the Pilgrims was being, you know, cultivated and hasn't been disrupted. Right. And, and there's a lot of those, you know, those 95% of bacteria and 90% of fungi we are not aware of even that they exist still floating around out there and <laughs> – by cultivating them, we can we can turn them on even if we don't understand them. There's two more things I want to cover with you before you go. One is I you know look at your thing and I see bioenergetics. What is bioenergetics? Yeah, it's it's a word that you know we talked about biodynamics uh, a bit a minute ago. And if you look into Steiner's lectures, you know it's a bit like uh, it's kind of like maybe a, like Jesus never knew there was going to be a church. You know what I mean? It, it, like what he what he brought forward was was made into things other than what he envisioned or really intended, I, I, I would you know, suffice to say. But um, Steiner's the same way. He brought it forward not to be a complete farming method in regards to biodynamics, but to be a, a method in which um, you could work with the energetic component of life, if you will. It's almost homeopathic farming. Um, you're, you're working th- through the vibrations of things and the ability of water to deliver it rather than the physical substance itself. So it's it's endlessly fascinating, but it's not... 
doesn't involve um, you know mineral balance and biological diversity and cover cropping and companion planting and very relevant um, you know concepts in, in agriculture. So what we tried to do is come up with a term that that fit with the highlight of what we saw was deficient. And it, it, if you think about what modern agriculture is, it's physical and it's mineral. You know, you plow and you fertilize. You know, if you think about organic agriculture, it begins to incorporate the, the biological realm, but both of them completely ignore the energetic component. So biodynamics encapsulates that, bio, uh, that energetic component, but it ignores the other ones. So what we tried to do is bring it all together. Not to say that, you know, properly draining soil and mineral balance aren't relevant, but that it's not the entire story. So when we consult people, we actually have a like a 10-page questionnaire in it. And it tends to, to teach people about their farms. You know, it's asking them questions a lot of times they've never considered before. But we can actually get to a point through this information where we can c- completely consult with you in, in a third party without even visiting your property. Um, and, and we do it through the physical, mineral, biological, and energetic components. So, you know, it, it was described to me one way that, that resonates. You know, conventional farming is drowning. Organic far- farming is, is treading water. And, you know, I would say bioenergetic farming is, is really going swimming where you want to go you know it, it's, it's the really the most effective means at regenerating a living system rather than just kind of keeping it status quo so the uniqueness of it is primarily the energetic component but it's also heavily steeped in biological diversity and uh, then we do an Albrecht approach to the mineral balance which is you know basically not measuring managing the pH which is all the extension service will do they'll they'll tell you to add how much lime to add based on the deficiency of you know your exchange capacity but you know if you have too much calcium in your soil to begin with in your base saturation and you got a low pH which happens in our town we've got real sandy soils the recommendation is to add lime well lime is calcium so you're just adding more of what you got too much of but you can still move the number you know, so the number is the afterthought on the pH. It doesn't. Are you that. saying that the mineral balance itself will move the number? It will. Yeah. You, the base. Interesting. It, yeah. In general terms, this might be interesting to flesh out for a second. It's, it's if you got the soil, it's negatively charged on balance. The soil is. The earth is negatively charged for that matter. Um, but the the soil is negatively and opposites attract. So there's a term called exchange capacity in the soil that basically means this is how negatively charged the soil is because it can hold this many positive elements. And the majority of what plants need is positives, as is hydrogen, which is what defines pH. So what happens is when a plant uses calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, you know, all the micros that are positive, it replaces it with a hydrogen ion. Therefore, soil becomes acidic because it's demineralized. So gotcha. what you're doing when you're adding the lime is you're adding calcium, positive element, which Correct. displaces the hydrogen, therefore the pH goes up. So if you want 60% calcium in your base saturation and, you know, 20% magnesium, 10 potassium, there's a sweet spot. And this is established agronomy since the 40s. It's not used in, in, you know, very heavy heavy mainstream circles, but it's common knowledge. When you get that sweet spot, 60, 20, 10, 7, generally right, the pH is always perfect. So it's mm. it's kind of the afterthought because if your if your action is driven by the pH like I, I fleshed out if you got 70% in your base saturation and a low pH because you're missing everything else the lime will make the pH number right but you're creating haywire in your soil. So let's swing this the other way then yeah. and look at it from another standpoint. So you got acidic soil, I've got alkaline soil. Right. I've got seven six, seven eight. Right. Some places a little higher. Uh, my natural ecosystem here is somewhere between like a. Uh, a scrub oak thicket and a sage brush step environment. Right. right. Um, 
huge amounts of calcium in the in the in the soil. Right. Um, calcium, uh, caliche, uh, right. or uh, ocean uh, rock underneath the ground. Right. Some places the soil is only a foot before you're hitting white old ocean bed. You pull it out of the ground. Wow. It looks like concrete from a distance until you get up close to see all the little shells and fossils in it. Wow. Um, and, you know, I'm working with animals and putting lots of uh, manure into the soil, running tractors and things like that, moving the chickens, the geese around, trying to put more bacterial activity into this stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a, it's a struggle, and it's not the easiest environment to work with, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, in that in that scenario, what you typically use in a pH uh, a, a soil that has too high an oversaturation of their base saturation is that you use things like sulfur. Uh, Correct. And sulfur. That's, that's the extension. You know. Yeah. Ag, ag extension. We can say yeah. put sulfur on it. Yeah, and and that's that's true to an extent because you're, you're basically trying to to eliminate things from the soil. The problem is if the soil is so compacted that you can't get can't get it to move anywhere it's a bit of you know spinning your wheels so it, the really the, the the potent approach that i would take if i were you is biological and and i know that you're doing all the work with the, the manuring but you know take that concept that the microbes in an animal gut are not the microbes you want making the plant food for your soil you know correct i, I think that you know a, a very simple you know short-term inoculation of your composting operation and introducing a greater diversity of soil microbes into the into the scenario would change yeah. everything for you. Um, now, on a, on a, on a gardening standpoint, yeah. that's easy. And we're having really good results already. And this is a property we just moved to this year. Right. So we went from, like, I had this booming property in Arkansas. Years of love went into it. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, it was just – and, like, this is exciting here, but it's new. So right. I'm, I'm willing to take a step back to go forward, so to speak. Right. Gardening level, you know, gardening spot, a few hundred square feet or so, no problem. Yeah. How do you take that approach out? To the three acres that I'm trying to manage. Well, essentially, it's not. You don't need to use as much as you might think because you're growing the concentration to ah. to such an extraordinary concentration you can't even really fathom it. You know, it's kind of like thinking about a trillion dollars. You know, it's just off the charts. You know, so what 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 you're looking at is when you brew the tea. What I normally recommend, not knowing any intimacy about a scenario, is I make the assumption that the soil is dead. And it very well might not be, but whatever you're going to do is not going to hurt anyway. Um, So what I normally recommend is 20 gallons an acre year one. um, And intensively, you know, I'd say at least three times during the season, um, ideally every month. Um, The more microbes you deliver to the soil, the faster they build the neighborhood, if you will. And and it doesn't really become productive and people can't move in until it's finished, you know. So you kind of want to get as many out there as, as upfront as possible. And then once you've got the results that you're, you're looking for and you can ensure that you have the biological diversity into the soil itself, you can then cut that back to, you know, three to five gallons an acre. Um, that's not much at all. It's not anywhere near what I was thinking. No, no. Um, so let me tell you something I'm doing that's a, sort of similar. It's starting to show some results already. Yeah. Uh, I've put in a, I'm going to call it, it was, you know, designed to be an aquaponic system eventually. I'm going to call it aquaculture system for right now. Yeah. Uh, Running just goldfish right now while we're establishing it. Uh, It's about 1,200 gallons uh, over three tanks. Right. Uh, Gravity fed one pump up to the top. You've got multiple flows coming down, dropping, oxygenating the water. Got some plants growing in it, you know, not a flush and drain system or anything. Right. Uh, just straight baskets with gravel, plants growing in the gravel. Right. Everything's looking great. Um, what we're doing is I have hose bibs at each location that the water drops from one tank to the other. So at any one of those locations, I can hook a garden hose up to it, turn the water on, 
and I'm spraying that water out onto the land and then recharging it with rainwater out of the range catchment system back into it as my water exchanges. That's slick. That, and that's like so passive and so simple. And I w- my land's mostly flat, it's so much so that even the parts of the land that are a little bit higher, even with that pathetic little pump that's doing that little bit of work, I can put that water anywhere I can reach a hose to. Wow, yeah, that that's slick, man. I, that is an aquaponic system, you know. Correct. I mean, it's it, just it, the, it, the 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 aquaponics part is the land itself. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. No, absolutely. You're just taking it basically because you know you're well aware of doing that. That microbes are what creating the the plant relevance there. You know. So, that's the thought. And, and, yeah, and, and here's kind of a perfect example that I think is a good. You brought this up because it's it's kind of that assumption that the microbes that are needed are already there. You know, yeah. you can't just can't take that for granted. And, and it's, 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 it's ironic because, you know, again, it's like composting. What defines the process is biological diversity, right? It's the same thing in aquaponics. What defines the process is the bacterial mass primarily, but the other organisms are relevant as well in cycling the ammonia into a nitrate. So it, what normally people do when they set up an aquaponics system is they wait. They, they charge it with nitrogen. They wait for the cycling to get up to speed. And it can take yeah. six, eight weeks sometimes, you know. Yeah. But it's passive. I mean, why would you not seek out the most broadly diverse biological source that you could find and add that to your system up front? You yeah. know? And when you yeah. do that, not only do you cut down your cycling time, but, you know, a lot of people use worms, you know. And worms are amazing and their manure is entirely relevant because they're a soil organism. So the bacteria that they harbor in their gut is of the soil, unlike a cow, you know? So in in that respect, you don't have to really take the worm castings into another form. But if you think about what worm castings are, there's about a fourth of the fungal diversity you'd find in an average compost. No protozoa, no nematodes. So all of the higher organisms are are vacant, and and you're really only working with, you know, an insufficient deck, I would would say. So what happens when you take those castings, though, and turn them into a tea or that juice? Does that then encourage the growth of those other flora? No, it it wouldn't unless they're physically there. And the point is... you can put worms into a, a, a batch of raw organic matter, and the worm will do its thing because it's got what it, in its gut, just like we do. When we eat, it digests it and makes manure. But it doesn't necessarily like to eat the paper or the dead root. It wants to eat what's eating the paper or the dead root. You know? gotcha. So when you add not only a broader diversity that it might have in its gut, but also the higher organisms that justify, you know, it's like stocking a lake with like just bass, you know, it, yeah, yeah. it, it doesn't have anything to eat. It's not going to work, you know, Correct. so it's, it's that same mindset is diversity and worms have a great diversity and you can make some good compost tea out of it, but you're not brewing the diversity of fungi, protozoa and nematodes. Nematodes are what you, you could buy it in our garden center as an individual organism. They're grown yeah. in a lab and they, yeah. they treat grubs and fire ants and all kinds of amazing things but you don't get any of that from worm castings because it's not a complete soil food web what do you guys do with hydroponics i've noticed you guys are involved with that as well yeah no we we do kind of everything in between you know we do hydroponics aquaponics soil um we work with commercial growers we you know help them think about their water we have hydroponic nutrients our 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 goal there is to kind of you know again kind of the thread of of why i found you guys is is to empower people to do it themselves you can build a hydroponic system out of a five gallon bucket and a silo cup you know um as long as you got the nutrition in a complete form and the ph ability of managing the ph of that solution you can grow a 40 foot tomato plant in a five gallon bucket you know it's there's really nothing to it so you know, hydroponics is, can be made complicated just like anything else, but in the end, a plant is a plant. 
You know, it wants what it wants wherever it's growing, even if it's on Mars. So if you take that into account, you provide the utmost of mineral diversity and I would argue biological diversity, the plant's going to figure out what it wants and it wants to grow. You know, it's not a human responsibility to grow a plant. So that's, that's kind of the way we try to connect with people on it. Make it simple, give someone an experience, and it's really fascinating to see roots grow and see how fast plants can grow and the concentration of what they want to eat is idealized. And that's really the technology of hydroponics. Yeah, and it, it happens in any place you give a plant water. So one of the things I'm experimenting with in this little uh, uh, aquaculture, uh, aquaponics system, whatever you want to call it at this point, is chufa. Uh, chufa is also known as earth almond. They make this like milky almond flavored stuff out of it in Spain. It's real popular. Who go to something? Um, it's, it's very high in fat. It's one of the highest, uh, uh, oil rich, uh, things you can grow. It's a member of the sedge family. So it can become invasive and it, it grows in this, you know, sedge and, uh, you know, your ruminants aren't going to really, uh, dig the green part. So the, the, the tuber is the main thing, uh-huh. but if not managed properly, it can become invasive. Right. It's a great human food. Huh. High protein and fat, right? Uh. Um, but you pull it out of the ground, you got all these little tiny tubers about the size of, uh, half a peanut. Uh-huh. You got to get all this dirt off of and it's a pain in the butt. Huh. When you grow it in gravel, and an aquaponics system, and when you're ready to harvest it, you just yank it out and hose it off. That's it, man. That's why right? people and say the same thing about spinach. You know how it crinkles. You got to get all the dirt out. You know. Yeah. So you don't have to but, deal with that. That's a trip. But when what I'm what I'm getting at is like so you put these these little pots. I have them like half deep in the water, sitting on top of cinder blocks in these tanks, and they have this root structure just going everywhere into the water. Uh huh. And, and just taking all that nutrient up, and that that. It's it's amazing what happens when you turn that that principle on vegetative matter that generally doesn't grow in that environment. Right. It, 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 I'm this is something very very new to me that I've, I have been prodded for five years by the audience to do, and it's like <laughs> I'm set up for it now. I can start experimenting with it. That's uh, cool, man. That sounds like you got a good setup going on there. Well, it's in progress. There's uh, there, I've got a guy and in my intern out there right now working on enhancing the rain catchment system as we speak. So, because cool. uh, we want to rely less on our well water, because of course it's very it's very alkaline in its, right. its own because it's you know being pulled. It, it, the aquifer is old ocean floor. Right. I mean, right. That's the only way to describe this stuff. So, dude, um, I have had a great time talking to you today. Uh, you're one of the most informed and insightful guests I've ever had on. Wow. Uh, can you tell people, like, if they want to learn more about your stuff, uh, get things from you, get in touch with you, what are the websites they should use to do that? Yeah, well, th- thanks for that. Um, yeah, go to, you know, our retail website's progressivegardens.com. It, it's kind of got a little bit of everything. I'd invite people to go to vortexbrewer.com. If you fill out the web form there, it'll give you a, some videos and a couple things to read about what we do. But if you fill out the web form, uh, you enter into when a free vortex brewer. We, we draw it every month. Um, so put your name in the ring. Um, it'll send you a report called Compost Tea Miracle Fertilizer. That'll answer any question that wasn't clear about what we talked about. And you know somebody may follow up with you. Feel free to engage them or not. It's just kind of a courtesy. Uh, but that I think is probably the best way to get in touch uh, at vortexbrewer.com. And uh, if you have any questions about anything in these regards, man, I ho- hope you can tell we're pretty open and we're not, we're going to shoot you straight. We're not going to try to sell you a bunch of stuff you don't need. So if we can be a resource and anything growing, please, please do let us know. And I- I'd love to come back sometime, man. I've had a blast as well. Oh, uh, I was going to invite you already. I-, I think we could pick any one of these subjects and go deeper into it. I think the audience would get a lot out of it. That's great. Uh, it's great when I find a guest that, uh, 
that I think really really knows what they're talking about. Well, and, that's uh, fantastic. I was referred by people that know what they're talking about. So you got a, a well trained <laughs> audience out there too. So uh, yeah, uh, just becoming Jay. I appreciate what you do. Well, the best the best interviews on this show always come. Uh, either from the audience directly, an audience member, or someone that the audience has contacted. I'm often asked, you know, go get in touch with so and so and get them on the air. And I'm like, you go get in touch with them. <laughs> uh, because if they respond, if somebody that responds to audience members uh, and takes a little bit of time to at least understand who they're coming to talk to, it doesn't submit me a guest form that looks like an infomercial waiting to happen. Always ends up being a great interview. This one was no exception. So, Evan, uh, thanks, man. And uh, I think we'll. Uh, I think we'll be uh, we'll be working together quite a bit in the future, and, and you're welcome back anytime. Oh, well, that's great. Thanks again. Look forward to it. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Evan Fultz, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.